Welcome to the Bethesda Church Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. If you'd like to contribute financially to this ministry, you can do so at BethesdaChurch.tv slash give and simply select the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you enjoy today's message. Today we kick off a brand new series called Bitter to Better. Come on, hit your neighbor and tell them Bitter to Better. I want to call uh, message one of this series, I want to call it, There is a Miracle in Your Mistake. There is a miracle in your mistake. Would you encourage somebody right now and just tell them there's a miracle in your mistake? Oh my goodness. Wrong person. Come on, find somebody else. Tell them there's a miracle in your mistake. All right. I'm going to go to the book of Ruth today. It is the eighth book of your Bible. If you're not familiar with the book of Ruth, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then you come to the book of Ruth. Uh, Very short book. A lot of people skim over it, move past it quick, but there's a lot of kingdom principles in the book of Ruth. Um, And what I want you to know, I don't want to assume that you know this, but a lot of people have a hard time understanding their Bible. Uh, They struggle to make sense of it. I mean, if you do open your Bible and turn over to Leviticus and you start reading about all the animals they slaughtered, you may struggle. Uh, If you start in Matthew and you read about the genealogies and, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so and and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so, you'll be asleep real quick if you don't understand how to study your Bible. But one of the things we, we need to understand is that God shows us things in Scripture through types, copies, and shadows. Types, copies, and shadows. We have an Old Testament and we have a New Testament. The word testament actually means covenant. God has two covenants in the earth. He has an old covenant and a new covenant. You live in the new covenant. Just so everybody's on the same page, hit your neighbor and tell them you live in the new. You live in the new. You are in the new covenant. And so what we see oftentimes in the Old Testament are copies, types, and shadows of what would come in the New Testament. You and I have an advantage because we live in the New, we can read the New Covenant, and when we read the Old Testament, we read it in light of everything Jesus did. And so um, many times, the the way we, we need to understand this is that a shadow, for instance, a shadow will give you a broad image of something. When you look at a shadow, you're seeing a broad image of something, but you cannot see all the details. In the Old Testament, what you have is the light of God shining on Jesus and casting a shadow on the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, we get a broad picture of who Jesus is. For example, in the Old Testament, Moses is a type of Christ. Egypt is a type of bondage. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Anybody following me? One. Awesome. Uh, The Red Sea, when the the waters are parted and they walk through, that's a picture of baptism. Canaan land on the other side of the Red Sea, when when they got to, or the other side of the Jordan, when they got to their promise, when they got there, um, that, that was not a picture of heaven. That, that is a picture of living in the promises of God. And the way I know that is that when they got to Canaan, there were giants in the land. How I many of there's no giants in heaven that you have to drive out? 
So it's about living in your purpose and in your calling. So there's types, copies, and shadows. And we're going to use the book of Ruth to frame this out of talking bitter to better. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem, Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and we'll call him Chilion. Some translations say C-H, some say K. We're just going to call him Mr. Chill, all right? They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and they lived there. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. And they had lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Mr. Chill died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and sat out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I too... I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. I want to stop right here and drop down to verse 19 for sake of time. It says, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Moving from bitter to better, there is a miracle in your mistake. Elimelech is the patriarch of this family that we're reading about. His wife, her name is Naomi. He also has two sons, and they lived in a place called Bethlehem, Judah. This is very significant. That's why I set this up, talking types, shadows, copies. Bethlehem Judah means house of bread or house of the word. That's what Bethlehem means. It's talking about the house of bread or the word of God. And Judah means praise. And so they are living in Bethlehem Judah. It's a place of God's word, but it's also a place of praise. I could say it like this. They were living inside of a worship experience. The Word of God was central to their life. They, if we were to modernize the text, they would attend church. 
and say amen to the, the sermons and, and they would sing the songs and they would park cars and change diapers and serve people. And, and their, their whole life was centered around a worship experience. And I've seen this over the years, how people will come and be a part of the church and they love God's word, they love the praise and worship, they serve, they give of themselves, and then something happens or transpires in their life and you don't see them anymore. And, and, and you, you come to find out that they usually, one of two things have happened. They have endured a bitter season or they've gotten offended. But either way, it has taken them from Bethlehem, Judah, the place of God's word and the place of worship and the Bible says they went to a place called Moab. Very significant because Moab means idle. It means you're not doing anything. It means your life is not centered on the word, praise and worship. You're not serving anymore. It means lazy. The, the secondary meaning of that word is lazy. So they had this temporary problem. A famine hit. They pulled their family up from the place of the word and praise and they went to a place to become lazy. And the Bible tells us that when they left that worship experience, God's word and the praise, that everything in their life started dying. The husband died. The two sons died. I'm going to go ahead and warn somebody right now that's thinking about, I'm just going to quit church and I'm going to quit, you know, doing all this stuff. What's it matter anyway? I'm telling you, that is a trick of the enemy to get you outside of God's covering in your life. And stuff will start dying. Everything they had started dying when they went to Moab. And, and, and this is so important to grasp because it's not possible for you to stay in a neutral place. You are either moving forward in God or you're moving backward. There, there is no neutral in God. We're, we're going forward or we're going backward. And so it was in Moab that the two sons took wives. The wives are from Moab, Orpha and Ruth. Moab, again, is a place of, of laziness, idleness, false religions, all of these things going on there. And the husband dies, the two sons die, and now Naomi, the mom, is left with two daughters-in-law. And Naomi says, I've got to get us back to Bethlehem, Judah. I got to get us back to the place of God's word, back to a place of praise. I need my life centered around a worship experience. And the Bible says that as they're going back, the two daughters-in-law, Orpha and Ruth, decide to go with her. We're going to go with you to Bethlehem, Judah. But once they got started, Orpha decided, I can't do this. I'm going to stay with my people where I'm from. I'm going to stay in Moab. The point is, with that, the reason I reference that is that everyone cannot go where you're going. It doesn't mean they're bad people, but it does mean that not everyone is called to where you are called. And I'm going to go ahead and help somebody today that's trying to live their life on purpose. That as you pursue purpose in God, you will find new faces coming into your life and some old faces that have been there a long time exit your life on your way to purpose. It doesn't mean they're bad. They're just not called to where you're called. But you got to keep moving. you got to keep moving in, into the place God has called you. And so it says in verses 19 and, and 20, I'll, I'll paraphrase, when Naomi and Ruth came back to Bethlehem, Judah, the women exclaimed, could this be Naomi? Watch this. They made a decision.
10 years earlier to leave the worship experience, to go to Moab, and, and it's just been 10 years. And when Naomi comes back, the people cannot even recognize her because that lazy idol place has taken such a toll on her that people who knew her before had trouble recognizing her. I want you to think about the toll that it takes. How many know that sometimes when we go into that idle, lazy place, we can't even see what all's being taken from us in that season? And, and so they couldn't even recognize her. And Naomi says, watch this, she said in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. I don't want you to call me that. I want you to call me from here on out Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Naomi was saying, I, I want you to name me what I just went through. I want you to call me what I went through. It's dangerous to let your life be defined by your latest bad season. We go through a bad season and then all of a sudden we want to be defined by our latest bad season. And so people meet us 17 years later and you know the first conversation we strike up, well, 17 years ago, this is what happened to me. At some point, you got to decide to leave that bad season, that bitter season, where it's at and don't allow anyone to define you by your latest bad season. But Naomi said, call me, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. I want to be defined by that season. Don't al allow anyone to call you what you went through. And the reason for that is because a lot of times our bitter season, our painful season, if we respond appropriate, appropriately to it, when we come out on the other side, we come out a better person. We come out a stronger person. We have more wisdom, more grace. All these things happen if we respond appropriately to it. But Naomi went through a bitter season and then said, I want you to call me bitter. I want to be defined by this. And, and, and so you, you may be here and say, you know what? I, I, haven't, I haven't experienced a bitter season before. I don't even know what you're talking about, Pastor. Well, praise the Lord for you. But it is impossible to live your life and never drink a cup of sorrow. At some point, you're going to drink a cup, a cup of sorrow. At some point, you will have a bitter season. Things will not always go your way. Some people allow what they go through to define their life. And every relationship is de defined by their latest bad season. There's a reason as to why when God was bringing His, his, his people Israel out, when they were in the wilderness, he wanted them in tents. He did not want them to build houses. And the reason is because in your wilderness season, you're not, it's not meant for you to build a house there. You just need a tent there because you're not going to be there long. We don't build the house until we get into our promise. But a lot of people are, are taking a permanent residence in a wilderness season that God never destined for you to live there and stay there. God is saying that was a tent season, but I got a house season for you over here in your promise. But you got to decide to not allow that season to define you and start moving into your purpose. A few things I want to lay some groundwork and we'll get back to this story of Naomi and Ruth. Number one, you and your gift are not the same thing. I struggled with this for a long time because I thought me and my gift were the same. But they're not the same. 
The scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit is a gift giver, that he gives gifts unto men. Whenever you're born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence. Your life becomes his house. And he comes with gifts that he has given to you. Every person in here is gifted. You have things that God has blessed you with. And, and, and what we have to understand is that Jesus paid a high price to live in you. Blood was spilled so that he could take up residence in you. The Holy Spirit is a gift giver. The scripture says he gives gifts unto men and women. But here's the thing. I did not get to choose my gifts. I didn't get a choice in it. Because if I'd gotten a choice in it, I mean, I would have figured out, like, God, you, you know, I get a choice. At least help me sing a little. These singers ever make y'all mad? They say, son, I'm mad at them. Why didn't I get that gift? I'm just kidding. I'm not really mad. But I didn't get to choose the gifts that I have. If that was the case, there, there are some things I don't have that I probably would have chosen. So I, I didn't get a choice in the matter. But God gives gifts as he wills. I get to do what I'm doing right now, but it's a gift God gave me. It comes with a high price tag to it. There's some good parts of it. There's some really hard parts of it. But it's a gift God has given me. Uh, and, and I mention this because I want to encourage you to be very careful when you see someone who is gifted and they're operating under an anointed gift because what happens is when someone's anointed and they have a gift, they make a hard thing look easy. So you could look at somebody preaching and say, I could do that. Okay. Or you watch Steph Curry shoot three-pointers from 35 feet in the finals, and it's nothing but net. And you say, he makes that look so easy. Like, he just comes down, dances a little, throws it up, and money. And you say, I could do that. And you can't even hit the backboard with the ball. You couldn't throw it in an ocean. Like, it, he makes a hard thing look easy. He has a gift that was given him. So if you were to sit and watch him, and, and, and you would come to the conclusion that looks so effortless, or you watch Tiger Woods hit a golf ball, and it just, how does he, it just looks so, I mean, he's not straining, he's not, you know, grunting, he's just swinging, and 300 yards later, here we are. And we say, you know, I can do that. And we make the mistake. And, and, and here's the thing. When that happens, I want to say it again. People who are gifted and operate under an anointed gift make hard things look easy. Acts chapter 19. I want to show you this real quick and then we'll move on. It says, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, I want, I want to stop and just say, they've been watching Paul do this effortlessly. Paul is anointed. He's got an anointing. Evil spirits lead people when Paul's around. He didn't even have to be there. Like, stuff touched his clothes, and there was a tangible presence of God so strong on his life that when they took the handkerchief that had touched Paul, like took it to people with evil spirits, the demons would leave and people would be healed. So these guys thought, that looks easy. We can do that. And it says, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. 
Paul, we know him, but who are you? In other words, you don't have the same anointing that Jesus and Paul had. You're trying to do something that you saw somebody else do. And it says, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out. Watch this. This is what happens when you try to do something you're not gifted and anointed to do. They left there and they were beaten naked and wounded. This is what happens when you op operate outside of your anointing and your gifting. When you get outside of your lane, you're going to end up beaten. You're going to end up wounded. The anointing makes a hard thing look easy. So, if you watch Michael Jordan play basketball, if you're gifted like that, and you can do what he did, you have a gift. If you can fix cars without much effort, then you have a gift. If you can make flowers grow in a mulch bed that nobody else can make grow, you have a gift. If you can sell a house that nobody else can sell because you have the gift of gab, you have a gift. Come on, somebody, are y'all with me? All right, if you work in security and you're aware of environments that everybody else is oblivious to, you have a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift giver, but you and your gift are not the same thing. I can show you this with Jesus. Jesus went about healing everyone, setting people free, performing miracles, all these things. But look at what it says in John 2, verses 23 and 24. It says, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Translation, Jesus would not give himself to them because he knew them. People were watching him operate in his gift, and his gift had drawn a crowd. He knew, though, they didn't love him they loved what he was able to do. And so there is a difference between his gift, his anointing, and him as a person. There are a lot of people, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, that will say, Pastor, I love you. I just love you so much, Pastor. You would never imagine how much me and my family love you. But really, they don't even know me. I'm going to get in trouble with this one. What, what they're really saying is, we love what you do. Because there is a difference in pastor, the gift, and Chad, the person. If you see me out at a community pool with my kids wearing swimming trunks, I promise you, I am not very pastoral in that moment. So if you come running, pastor, 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 I need A, B, and C. I promise you, at that moment, I'm not operating in my gift and my anointing. I'm just trying to be a halfway decent dad in that moment, not trying to be pastor. There is a difference between your gift and you. Now, now this goes two ways. That's why God forbids judging. God forbids judging. And the reason God forbids it is because you can only judge the behavior you see someone do. You have no ability to see their heart, their motivation, or their intentions. Only God can see that. And, and, and we have to be careful here because everybody in this room has done things that they would not want to be judged for. Church people are crazy, man. Church people are crazy. You make a mistake and they automatically categorize you. You're a bad person. Did you know you can do a bad thing and still be a very good person? 
Yeah, I said it out loud. I'm going to go ahead and preach. Let me come home with you for about a week before you get all holy. And let me see you lose your temper a couple of times. So you can be a good person and do a bad thing that you would never want to be judged for. And so uh, your gift and you are not the same thing. Secondly, and this is going to be worth coming for for many of you today, your gift does not replenish you, it depletes you. Somebody, if I could just get in my gifting, if I could just operate in what I'm called to do, your gift does not replenish you, it depletes you. The better you are at your gift, the more calls you get. If you are the best mechanic in town, how many know your gift is going to wear you out? If you're the best doctor, if you're the best realtor, it doesn't matter. If you're the best accountant, if you're the best teacher, what, what happened? You get more calls, you got more people asking questions, and so your gift does not replenish you. Your gift actually depletes you. The better you are at what you do, the more it takes out of you. And this is why for some of you, you're in a season where God is changing environments on you on purpose because God has to change our environments sometimes because we won't change it on our own. And and the reason is if you operate in your gift 24-7, it will not take long for you to reach a point where you will desperately need ministry. You are not meant to function in your gift all the time. See, no one can do that. Even Jesus got tired and took a break. The Bible talks many times about him leaving the crowd, even leaving the 12 to go be in solitude with the Father. One day, that he, they, they had just watched him perform miracles in John chapter 6, and they had saw him heal people. They had saw him multiply fishes and loaves. And so crowds of people came around, and, and they, they were wanting him to perform. They wanted him to multiply fishes and loaves, get people up out of wheelchairs, bring me a healing, give me a miracle. And Jesus got so tired of all that, the constant demand, he turned and he looked at the crowd and he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part with me. You say, well, what does that mean, pastor? It means there are a lot of people that like what you do, but there are very few people that like you. I'm preaching real good. And so you got to know that your gift and you are not the same thing. Do you know who your real friends are? It's the people who will be there even when you don't have anything left to bring to the table. My bitter seasons, I found out who were my real friends. Because I had nothing to give to the relationship, but they were still there. They were checking on me. They were following up. I know who my real friends are because when I had nothing to give the relationship, they stayed by my side. Ruth, the daughter of Naomi, she's from Moab, this place of idleness and laziness. But there is more on the inside of her that she doesn't even recognize. There's something God has put in her. And and, and what I love about the book of Ruth, God is about to take her from literally begging in the field, like begging, to owner of the whole field. That, that she is about to function on a level that she did not know she had the capacity to function. But God knows that cannot happen in Moab 
That can only happen in Bethlehem, Judah, the place of the word and the place of praise. So God uses Naomi's mistake that she made 10 years earlier to connect Naomi with Ruth. Naomi and Ruth find one another when God is making the best out of a bad decision that Naomi had made. God has a plan for Ruth, and God is about to use Naomi's mistake to bring Ruth into her miracle. And I say all that to let somebody in this room know, quit crying over all of your mistakes and every bitter season that you've gone through because if you will hang in there, I promise you, God is about to create a miracle for somebody else out of your mistake, out of your bitter season, but you got to respond to it appropriately. We experience hell sometimes. We go through stuff. And sometimes we go through stuff and we experience hell because of decisions we make. And God says, I'm going to use that to create a miracle for someone. Quit, I, I, I got to say it again, quit crying over your bitter season. Quit making your whole life be defined by a choice you made, a decision you made, somebody who walked out. Quit allowing that to define your purpose. God has a miracle in the midst of your mistake. Third thing, when God gives you a gift, it is your responsibility to develop that gift. And it's God's responsibility to place you in an environment for that gift to thrive. So my responsibility is to develop the gift. God's responsibility is to give me a platform for the gift to thrive. So I don't have to create an opportunity. God does that part. I just have to develop my gift in private. See, we develop our gift in private before God ever puts it on public display. No one knows the long, boring hours that David practiced with his slingshot. Nobody preaches on that. Nobody talks about that. Nobody knows the long, boring hours he spent developing a gift with a slingshot. And, and, and we know the story how that he faced the giant and he took the giant down, but it was because he had developed something in private He had developed that gift when no one was looking. He had killed the bear when no one was there watching. He had killed the lion when nobody was there to clap and say, you're doing great. He just kept developing this gift in private, and then God gave him an opportunity to use this gift he had developed in private to do something on a public stage that got the attention of the entire nation. But he had developed it in private. Some of us, we want a stage, but we don't want to develop We want a platform, but we don't want a process. (laughs) If y'all saw me 20 years ago preaching to my walls, y'all said, that joker's crazy. I used to wake Karen up on Sunday mornings. When I didn't have an audience to preach to, I preached in my kitchen. My cabinets got saved. My sink got saved. (laughs) I did. I would preach out loud literally Wake her up from sleep because I'm down there yelling and screaming and running, running laps because I'm so excited about the Word of God. Had no audience, but I had a calling. Y'all missed that. Had, had, had no platform, but had a gift. And it has to be developed. It's got to be developed, though, in private before it can 
be celebrated in public. See, when Goliath was taunting Israel, David showed up, and a lot of us just think, well, he's just a shepherd and a great heart. and he, He's a shepherd boy, great heart. I believe all that. But I want you to look at what David said when he came and saw the giant. He said, um, he didn't say, like, do y'all want me to do this? He said, what do I get if I take that joker down? Think about that. Here's what they said. They said, all right, David, if you want to take him on, here's what you get. You get money. You don't have to pay taxes anymore. And you get to marry the king's daughter. David said, I'm your guy. <laughs> this anointing is feeling good right now. I'm your guy. Sign me up. I can do this. You know, I get money, no taxes, and I get the king's daughter. This sounds great to me. I've been developing, what David was saying, I've been developing something in private. But it's about time for this private development to have some public opportunity. See, he had been developing this. God's responsibility is to create opportunity for your gift to be put on display. Some of us are confused about the season we're in. We're frustrated because as you, as you pursue your calling and develop your gift, I said it earlier, people that have been in your life a long time, for whatever reason, sometimes they exit your life. And then God gives you new connections and a new network and new people. And you don't understand why new faces are showing up and old faces are leaving. And you don't, you don't really understand all this. But I'm saying to you, God is divinely moving to create the right opportunity for your gift to thrive. But God knows it can't happen in Moab in a place of you being idle and lazy. It can only happen in Bethlehem, Judah, the place of God's word and praise and worship when your life is centered around a worship experience and you are privately developing something on the inside of you. Even if nobody else can recognize it, you know God has put something in you and you're willing to work at it in private so that God can give you an opportunity in public. Can somebody give God praise if you believe that he's doing that for you. As I was studying for this message, it's going to be a little odd, but we're good on time. It hit me. Uh, it's crazy when God speaks to you. I was watching the finals the other night, and I had to tell Pastor Josh, I said, man, can we, can we show a video on Sunday? And he's like, yeah, we can do it. And here, here's the thing. As I was studying for this and, and this whole concept of being developed in private and our responsibility is to develop the gift, God's responsibility is to give us an opportunity or a place or an environment. I was reminded of the prophetic word given over this house two weeks ago. And so I want to play that clip for you. Check this out. The last thing I'll speak over this house before I give it to Pastor Chad. We were talking right before service. You know, I, I got family in West Virginia. They're way up in Yonder Hill. I mean, place where you don't know. They're up in Payton City. Most people in West Virginia, they're like, yeah, I don't know where that is. I mean, that, you know it's in a remote place if you don't know where it is. I've driven on 64 past Greenbrier for years. I didn't know this was here. I didn't know this was here. But look what God was doing. Look what God was doing. Now, I, I said in the first service, and I'm going to allude to what I said about world harvest, but I feel the spirit of prophecy on me to speak to this house because God built this. Here's the word of the Lord. This is a prophetic word. You can write it down. and It will come to pass. 
God said, I was building this house in private when no man saw, no woman knew what I was doing. He said, but I kept you in private and I built you in private. But now the Lord says, I expose what I have done. I'm putting the spotlight on this church. I'm causing my light to shine. People will be attracted to the Greenbrier. They will be attracted. Come here, pastor. For the Lord would speak to this house and he'd say there was a pool called Bethesda where people would come from miles around because they knew that in Bethesda people were healed. In Bethesda they were delivered. And the Lord says no one went to Bethesda to die. They went to Bethesda to live. And the Lord says I have called you to be the modern day Bethesda. I have called you to be the modern day Bethesda. And yea, they will come from miles away. They will come from countries far away. They will come because they say if I get to Bethesda, I will be healed, I will be delivered, and I will live again. Give up. The Lord says, I have called this house to be a modern day Bethesda and the Lord says now I will expose the nation to the greatness of this house and I will cause them to come from around the nation and I will cause them to come from other nations and when they come they will find a house of healing they will find a house of deliverance for I will not visit this house occasionally I will take residence in this house says the Spirit of the Lord for I call this place Bethesda saith the Lord hallelujah There's a church he and I know in Ohio. It's in the middle of fields called World Harvest Church. Pastor Rod Parsley, you know who he is. One of the generals of the faith. He's out in the middle of fields out, outside of Columbus, Ohio. And God took that church and has touched the world. Well, God would have me remind you today, not because you're in the middle of fields, but because sometimes people don't give a lot. Let's just, let's call it what it is. Sometimes people don't give West Virginia the credit that it's due unless it's football season. Hallelujah. But the Lord will tell me, the Lord would tell me to tell you if I did it one time in Columbus, I'm about to do it with this city. I'm about to do it with this church. I prophesy to you. That means it's going to come to pass. Thus saith the Lord, I will use this church to touch the world with my glory, says the Spirit of God. You ought to give them praise right now. I bless this man. I bless his family. I bless everything he touches. I declare this church is going to be debt free in less time than what you think it is. I declare the Lord is going to do a mighty work and the world will know that the God of Bethesda is the God of the world. Give him praise. Amen. It's a powerful wor word about how God is going to use this house to touch the entire world. But part of that is that we've been working and developing in private before God was ready to put us on display in public. And I am saying to you in your personal life that you've got to develop the gifts in private and you allow God to give you an opportunity. You don't have to create opportunities. God will give you the opportunity. And so when it comes to our gifting and our anointing, there are some things that, that, that have to transpire in our life. And a lot of times, we won't come out of Moab on our own, so God has to drag us out, kicking and screaming. 
God has to pull us out. Some of you are being forced out of environments that you would have never left on your own terms. I want to encourage you to let your anxiety go. Don't worry about your comfort zone. Don't worry about those who left and those who came. Understand that you are living on purpose and God has, he's divinely moving on your behalf to put you in a place where your potential can come out and you can succeed. God is doing that on your behalf. Now, we have to look at Ruth and Moab again here real quick. Ruth did not come from Bethlehem, Judah. She is from Moab. So when she's going back with Naomi, she's literally leaving everything she's known. She's leaving her network, her family, her support system. She's leaving it all behind to go forward into the things of God. We have to develop our gift, but we also have to have an anointing. The anointing is what destroys the yoke and removes the burden. I'm not sure that we fully understand how the anointing works in our life. We understand the Holy Spirit anoints us, but I think we have missed how that anointing is multiplied or created in our life. As the worship team comes back, I want you to look at Exodus chapter 30 with me. Exodus chapter 30. This is when God has given instructions for the tabernacle and he's getting ready to tell them how the anointing oil is made. Check this out in verse number 22. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Take the following five spices, fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant calamus, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hen of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law, the table and all its articles, the lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them so that they will be most holy, and whatever touches them will be holy. We cannot do what God has called us to do with someone else's anointing. Let me explain. When David first agreed that he was going to take on the giant, the Bible says that they gave him Saul's armor. They clothed David fully in King Saul's armor. The, the thing I love about David is he was smart enough to know that if I'm going to fight this giant, if I wear Saul's stuff, I'm going to get killed in this battle. I'm not anointed to fight in Saul's gear. I'm anointed with a slingshot. I'm anointed. I have developed this gift. And he was smart enough to know I can't do what God's called me to do with someone else's anointing. There is a mindset within a lot of churches that if you see somebody who has a great anointing, whether it's a preacher, communicator, teacher, somebody like that, that you can come and they lay their hands on you and give you their anointing. And, and, and it's, it's a false mindset because you can't get my anointing by me laying my hands on you. I can't give you my anointing. I, I can stir your gifting up. I can stir your anointing up through the laying on of hands, but I cannot give you my anointing because I cannot give you my process.
You just missed it. I can't give you my anointing because I can't give you my process. I can stir your gifts up. And, and here's what we got to know. God will help you discover your gift, but then you got to develop that gift and you got to walk through some things. And what you got to understand about the anointing is that the anointing makes you greater than you really are. Without the anointing, you are regular, you are vanilla, you are normal. But when, the, when God's anointing comes on your life, you become great in the presence of God. Hit your neighbor real quick and tell him, you got to be anointed. Come on, tell them that. you got to be anointed. Now here's the deal. Everyone likes the anointing. Everyone. But few like the price tag. I can't give you my anointing because I can't give you my process. And this oil's expensive. I've been through some stuff, baby. I've walked through some things. And God says the first ingredient of the anointing oil is myrrh. And I want you to put twice as much of that as the other ingredients. Why is that important, Pastor? Because myrrh means bitter. See, we didn't think that our painful seasons were doing anything. But God says, no, when you go through a bitter season, that's actually me initiating a new anointing in your life. Some of you have walked through a bitter season. And you've been depressed about it. You've been frustrated about it. But I, I, I want to tell you, if you've walked through a bitter season, listen, keep walking. Because the sweet, the cinnamon is on the way. God is the perfumer. Watch this. Let me give you a couple more nuggets. Some of you have been wondering why your life is so hard and why everything's difficult and why the enemy's always attacking you and all this stuff. Even the enemy doesn't understand that his attacks against you is producing an anointing in your life. He doesn't even understand that every time he comes against your children, he's putting an anointing on your life. Every time he comes against your health, he's putting an anointing on you. He doesn't even know that he's actually contributing to what God is going to do in your life and how God is going to use you. Stand to your feet real quick. Come on, stand up, stand up. I'm going to show you this, and then I'll quit. When you come out of the season that you've been going through, that bitter season, there's going to be an anointing on your life in every environment you walk into. Somebody needs to hear me. Every environment you walk into, you're going to be able to change it and affect it because you're anointed. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God. That's a wonderful seat to be in. But how did he get there? How did Jesus occupy that seat? It all started in a bitter season. It all started in a place called Gethsemane when his sweat became like great drops of blood, the Bible says. It started there. And Jesus said something. He said, if it's possible, can I bypass this bitter cup? Can I still get to where you want me to get, Father, without having to drink this bitter cup? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He submitted to the cup because Jesus trusted the Father enough that he was saying, I, I trust that you know where this is going, and if I have to drink a bitter cup to make it happen, then I'll drink the bitter cup. 
And so, the other part, one more thing. Jesus is born. Kings bring him gifts. Gold, frankincense, but one of them was smart enough to bring him myrrh. To say, you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I know to operate on that kind of level, you will have to drink a bitter cup. You will go through some dark seasons. And he presented him with myrrh, speaking of bitterness. The compounding process, if you've been in a bitter season, I prophesy over you now. The compounding process to the anointing and the oil that is so expensive is being produced in your life. Keep putting one foot in front of the other because the sweet, the cinnamon is on the way. God is a master perfumer and he's able to take the bitter and the sweet and he's able to produce something expensive, something beautiful, something that people will never understand, but it will cause you to impact every environment that you walk into. How many believe that you can move from bitter to better? Come on, somebody, give God a praise today. Oh my goodness. I, I'm telling you, everything you've walked through it may not have felt like it, but it was all part of the process. The greatest leaders and pastors and people that I respect the most, that have the most anointing, most influence, impact more lives than anybody else, every one of them, you don't get to hear it, you just hear them preach and teach and oh, that's wonderful and oh yeah, they're, they're great. Every one of them, they have drunk bitter cups they have gone through season of pain and loss they have experienced bitter seasons that has helped contribute to the power that they walk in and I'm telling you every bitter season that you've walked through is contributing to how God is going to use you there is a miracle in your bitter season there's a miracle in your mistake would you bow your head and close your eyes with me if you're in this place today you're not in relationship with Jesus Christ and you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life you need to have your sins forgiven today if that's you I want to give you an opportunity to confess him as your Lord and Savior if that's you would you just throw your hand up right there where you are and say pastor that's me I need Jesus thanks for this hand God bless you anyone else another one here God bless you I see that hand back there another one God bless you I see that hand sir awesome anyone else Say, that's me. I need Jesus to forgive me and to save me. Come on, let's pray with these people that have raised their hands and welcomed them into the family of God today. Come on, every voice lift and say, Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I'm a sinner. I've committed sins. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. So I ask you to forgive me, to come into my heart, to be my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for saving me and changing me. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you celebrate each person that made that decision today? God bless you. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Bethesda Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, BethesdaChurch.tv. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.